0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell.
1: Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we're coming to you from San Juan, Puerto Rico, and we'll have a wide ranging discussion about the island and its identity, plus an analysis of the special relationship. Between Mexico and the United States. But first, Sierra Hancock has our weekly review of news from around Latin America.
2: An investigative report by The Wall Street Journal set off another round of charges and countercharges this week between Venezuela and the United States. The journal's story revealed that the U.S. Justice Department is working up a case against Diosdado Cabello, the speaker of the National Assembly in Venezuela. The Justice Department is investigating whether Cabello headed a major drug operation based in Venezuela. These allegations began with a story from a former bodyguard of Cabello, who now lives in Florida. Media in Spain, led by the Spanish newspaper known as ABC, first reported the allegations Cabello may have ties to drug dealing. Venezuela's president, Nicolás Maduro, reacted to the media reports on national
1: television.
0: More attacks have come against Diosdado Cabello from the media in Miami, from the Wall Street Journal, from the fascist publication ABC of Spain. I call on all of the socialist movements, on all the socialist parties. I call on the young people, the women on the workers' class. These attacks on dado are attacks on all of us.
2: Cabello is generally regarded as the second most powerful member of the Venezuelan government. Cabello says the allegations are false, and so far he says the media have failed to produce any evidentiary proof that ties him to illegal drug operations. Cabello is suing 22 Venezuelan journalists for their role in repeating the allegations against him. Venezuelan courts ruled this week that those journalists should not be allowed to leave the country but in news about drugs coming from venezuela the colombian air force chased a plane loaded with cocaine until it crashed into the sea colombian military officials say the plane was carrying a ton of cocaine and was flown by a mexican pilot they also say they believe the cocaine shipment originated in venezuela Venezuela's defense officials admit the plane started its smuggling flight in their country, but they claim their fighter jets shot at the plane and eventually brought it down. Colombia's Air Force released video of the incident, which seems to confirm that the Colombians chased the plane until it crashed. Venezuela has become one of the leading transmission centers for cocaine, with drugs coming from Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia. China's Prime Minister Li Qucheng began a four-nation tour of Latin America this week with a major stop in Brazil. Li promised $50 billion of Chinese investment in Brazil, including the construction of a new major railroad that will link Brazil to the Pacific. That project also includes highway construction for Peru. Prime Minister Li also toured infrastructure projects in Rio de Janeiro. The Chinese are financing projects to support next summer's Olympics in Rio. Rio also unveiled a display of the Olympic rings this week to promote the Games. The rings stand about 40 feet tall and are multicolored. They were a gift from the British government, the host of the last Summer Games. A bishop in Colombia will think twice before wading into the controversial debate again on equality for the LGBT community. Colombia's leading LGBT organizations promoting marriage and adoption equality sponsored the bishop's speech. Bishop Juan Vicente Cordoba said members of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community, the LGBT community, are welcome in the church and their lifestyle is not a sin. However, during the speech he used demeaning terms for gay men. He also shifted on the issue of marriage equality, saying the church's rules on marriage only between women and men should be respected. Finally, he speculated that at least one apostle was gay and Mary Magdalene was a lesbian. Conservative Catholics said the bishop's remarks were blasphemy. Members of the LGBT community also expressed displeasure with the bishop's political stance and his politically incorrect use of terms. Bolivia called out the army this week, but not to fight, instead to bake. Yes, bake. The army has orders to turn out at least 140,000 bread rolls. These traditional rolls are called marraquetas in Bolivia, and the army will sell them for about five cents each. The Bolivian government called out the army due to a baker's strike. The bakers are striking because the Bolivian government has ended its price subsidies for wheat. Bakers say they feel squeezed because the government wants to keep the price of rolls cheap, but the government will no longer offset the cost of wheat for the rolls. Bakers say they need the price of rolls to increase at least a cent apiece to make a profit. For Latin Pulse, I'm Sierra Hancock.
1: Thanks, Sierra. This week, we're coming to you from the International Communication Association Conference in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And what better time to discuss the island and its status as a U.S. territory and Commonwealth. Earlier this year, various studies showed more Puerto Ricans are living on the U.S. mainland than on the island, a bit less than 5 million on the mainland compared to almost 4 million on the island, and hundreds of thousands have left in the past five years. With unemployment above 15 percent and the island facing a huge deficit crisis, the economic causes of emigration seem evident. Yet, Puerto Ricans maintain a proud heritage. We spoke with Maria Costa Cruz at Clark University in Massachusetts about the island. She's the author of Dream Nation, Puerto Rican Culture, and the Fiction of Independence. She joined us via Skype from Massachusetts.
3: Well, for the past 50 years, most Puerto Ricans who have voted in the regular elections and in the plebiscites, which are supposed to decide the status that they will have, The majority of Puerto Ricans have consistently and overwhelmingly voted to either stay the way the island is, which is a a sort of a commonwealth, or to become a state. It's only a minority that has voted for independence. The highest uh, participation ever was in the 1950s, as I recall, where 19% picked independence. But since then, and to this day it's a minority that actually votes in the polls for independence.
1: So are Puerto Ricans happy with territorial Commonwealth status or do they want to become a state?
3: I would say they're not happy with either of I mean they're not happy being a Commonwealth. The island is in very bad financial straits right now. Uh, it's in it's in a spiral going downwards because of some you know partly because the Commonwealth itself has problems in its structure. Uh, Being able to set the tariffs for uh, items that come to the island is something the island has never been able to do. The United States does that. Um, Most people realize that it needs improvement. But how to go about it, that's where uh, we've never seen a solid majority. Uh, Only in the last plebiscite was the majority for the first time for statehood. That's the first time that happened. But as you say, as you know, the problem with all these plebiscites is that so many people cast blank ballots as perhaps a
1: protest. What about all the blank ballots in the last plebiscite? If you added them to those supporting a status quo, it seems most Puerto Ricans uh, really don't want statehood.
3: Uh, It was clearly, clearly problematic. Again, in the ballot, uh, the plebiscite of 1993, there was a large number that voted none of the above which is actually funny, except it's not so funny. But people realize there are grave problems with the island's economy, uh, but they don't know quite how to solve them, uh, or they don't agree on how to solve them. What they do seem to agree, and have agreed for, for over 50 years, is that independence is not the way. However, the culture itself leans towards independence. The films, the novels, the poems, the art, all kinds of cultural music, also all kinds of cultural phenomena. Things that people love, uh, treasure independence, and this is why, to me, it's like a dream.
1: When folks point to music and culture in Puerto Rico, they inevitably point to music group 13 What's your opinion about their influence?
3: That's one of the best examples that I use in my in my book. They're uh, you know alternative reggaeton. They're very well known. They're global artists, and they are fiercely pro-independence. That tends to be the case with most, not all, but most Puerto Rican artists. They pick independence as the place where they put their heart and their hopes and their dreams, even though the people themselves, the voting public, rejects independence. That's what that's what drew me to the topic.
1: Is there a long cultural history of the support for independence like Calle support?
3: I mean, they are immensely popular, and there have been other musicians and artists and writers throughout the past, let's say, century and a half, who have also moved the people with their songs, but have not moved the people towards independence, because the people don't want them. Only the artists do. And not all the artists, but Calle 13 is the best example of how this phenomenon of artists looking towards a dream nation that the people really don't want.
1: No. Who else do Puerto Ricans hold up as great examples of the island's culture?
3: Well, the island is pretty self-contained. It, it doesn't look towards the same kind of fictions that the U.S. will look at. But one of the things everyone has in common are heroes. Well, in the U.S. they're heroes. In Japan they're heroes. Every nation has heroes. And in Puerto Rico, the importance of heroes always skews towards figures of independence. You know, these brain doomed fighters like Pedro Luis Campos and Lolita Lebron, who defended independence, but never saw their dream realized. So, the, the concentration of, the, the focus of certain art forms is on um, these heroes who provide a heart, who provide a sentiment, who provide uh, something ineffable, like je ne sais quoi, you know, that people like, but when they get to the voting booth, they're not voting for independence.
1: I wonder about the remembrance of the Puerto Rican independence fighters. In Washington, D.C., you can see the bullet holes in parts of the Capitol where Puerto Rican nationalists attacked the U.S. Congress in the 1950s.
3: Well, it it tends to be forgotten. But I believe it's the only time that the Congress has been attacked physically. And it was a shocking proof of desperation. Uh, These were desperate, desperate people who wanted to make a point. And perhaps part of behind their violent act was the necessity to prove something that the rest of the people did not want to prove. Not to prove how passionate they felt about independence, violently so, whereas the people were distant from independence.
1: So if independence isn't viable... Are Puerto Ricans pushing for a change in status?
3: That's a tough one. You know, that's a tough question, Rick. I am, right now, the island is in such grim financial straits that I don't think people are interested in the status decision and deciding to be a state or, stay a commonwealth, enhance the commonwealth, that's another option, or be independent. I think most people are, are desperately trying to focus on how to pull themselves out of the hole, out of the junk one status, for instance, that the island's bones
1: uh, have. So then let's discuss the economic problems and emigration. Now, you have more Puerto Ricans living on the mainland U.S. than on the island. And statistics show the island is losing hundreds of thousands of people. That's the current trend. A real brain drain of people moving away.
3: Well... Uh, The the brain drain, if you look at the data, if you look at, for example, the work done by Jorge Juani, he's a scholar in uh, Florida. If you look at the data, the brain drain is more friction than anything. People are migrating in huge numbers, and most of them, the majority, 40 to 50 percent, don't have uh, college degrees. So the brain drain is not as, as bad as as people fear. However, the dream in, in people power is very real. And you don't have to have a college degree to make wonderful work in the world and to be valuable to your community. So that dream, uh, you know, brain... Uh, I don't like that brain drain uh, notion because it's, it's not uh, factually true. And everyone who leaves, I think, that's a loss
1: for the island what are the areas that need addressing that will slow emigration away from the island
3: uh in the economy the economy of education the uh education department is in bad shape so those those two are tied
1: what haven't we discussed about your book that we should know
3: well it's probably having overcome being one of the oldest colonies in the world puerto rico transitioned from being a colony of spain being a colony of the United States now it's this Commonwealth status. but having been able to keep your sense of self despite having these overlords for since forever, since we've had history, we've been a colony, a, a part of some other greater, larger political entity. And having been able to stay as Puerto Ricans, despite that, I think that's a huge achievement. I think what's specific is looking at nations. Nations, not just Puerto Rico, all nations tend to follow the same kinds of paths. And one of them is to look at, uh, for instance, a political ideal that was never realized and how it endured. There's happiness in expressing a love of land, Even when, you know, that land is uh, a traffic jam, it's congested with a traffic jam, when people still dream of that beautiful green land that still exists, but uh, which is mostly gone. So is that delusional or is that a matter of the heart? I, I think it's
1: both. Thank you so much. Maria Costa Cruz, the author of Dream Nation, Puerto Rican Culture and the Fictions of Independence, and a professor at Clark University in Massachusetts. joining us via Skype from Massachusetts. Thanks for joining us today on Latin Pulse. Gracias. Coming up, the special relationship between Mexico and the United States. What are the key issues? We'll have answers. Stay with us.
2: Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Shannon O'Neill is
1: with the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States. She's the author of the new book, Two Nations Indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the Road Ahead. We spoke to her about this complex diplomatic relationship. She joined us via Skype from her office in New York City. Politics in Mexico have often set the U.S. at arm's length for various political reasons. Are we seeing a change with Enrique Peña Nieto and the Institutional Revolutionary Party, are they approaching the United States in different ways than the party had in the past?
4: You know, I've seen a change over the last decade plus in the way Mexico approaches the United States, and in part it is because of fundamental changes underneath. Uh, One is just the movement of people. Because of a wave of immigration that happened over the last three decades, which has now slowed, but three decades' worth of people coming from Mexico and the United States meant that 10 percent of Mexico's population actually lived in the United States. So not only were they living here but they had ties back of course to their family that's still there. So the links, the personal and community links between Mexico and the United States really changed from 1980 on as this wave of migrants and people that would come back and forth often to work, to live, uh, and, and to be with their families as that developed. I mean, another big shift we've seen between Mexico and the United States are the economic ties. And these really developed and accelerated with NAFTA, which is now 20 years old. And so in this last 20 years, we've seen the amount of trade quadruple. So now it's well over $500 billion that move back and forth across the border every year. But it's also changed in what actually moves across the border, what is traded. And so it's no longer oil from Mexico coming north and goods going south. It's really pieces and parts that go back and forth. And that attests to the way we make things. We make things across the border. So a factory in the United States will make a part and ship it down to Mexico where something will happen to it down there in Mexico. And then it'll come back to a factory here in the United States to be finished and sold here in the United States or perhaps shipped all over the world or even back to Mexico, to Mexico's consumers. So that linkages between companies, between factories, between peoples, all of that has changed a bit the dynamics um, between the two nations. And then in a way that I believe has filtered into the political system. I mean, the other big change is Mexico has become a democracy. Um, It's vibrant, it's messy at times, it has its, its difficulties in various moments. But it is a democracy, and that too has made it easier, I think, for the two nations, one, just to understand each other, but then two, to work together. And so given all of those changes, the people, the economics, the politics, I think Mexico's leaders and its political class are beginning to change too. And so we saw that first, particularly under the previous president, President Calderon, who pushed forward an economic agenda, but particularly pushed forward a security agenda and working with the United States for the first time on security And we've seen that continue under President Peña Nieto, the current president, who's been there for two years, and particularly on the economic side. He's really focused on how to bring Mexico and the United States together, actually to bring North America together, including the Canadians, uh, and make it a stronger continent economically through close ties.
1: Would you say that the oil reforms that this particular Mexican government pushed forward is part or a central part of that particular economic point of view?
4: It will be a big part. Many of the reforms, he passed several reforms during his first 18 months, that being the central reform, opening up Mexico's energy sector after 70 years of sole public ownership to now private investment. Uh, and we're going to see auctions begin in the next several months and and see that opening up. What's also happened, um, particularly the ties to the United States, is we've seen more and more gas pipelines being built so even before you start seeing drilling within mexico by private companies or consortium you're seeing more and more gas come down from texas or other parts of the united states into mexico and feeding the manufacturing industry that's so tied to the united states manufacturing industry providing a stable and and reasonably affordable uh, supply of gas to those areas and so those ties in the economic realm, and particularly energy will be a big promoter of this, both the investment directly in energy, but what safe, stable, affordable supplies of energy mean for the larger Mexican economy and frankly for the U.S. economy since they're tied together. I mean, that is a big part of this interconnectedness.
1: You characterized Mexican democracy as messy and many people would say democracies as a whole are often messy. This particular case of the 43 missing students from Guerrero and how that has roiled the political system since it happened last fall. Uh, Do you consider that part of the messiness with these allegations of corruption and other problems within the government? Or is that just part of how democracy works?
4: I mean, I think the fundamental challenge for Mexico, its biggest challenge, is rule of law. Can you create law enforcement systems, justice systems that can protect people um, and that can free the innocent and punish the guilty. And I would say on all the measures of of democracy, if you will, Mexico has done a fairly good job pushing forward on free and fair elections. But this element, right, the rule of law, that justice system, the third branch of government, if you have the executive, the legislative, the justice system, it still has a long way to go. And the disappearance and, and presumed death of these 43 students, that is part of the, la- the lawlessness um, that happens in places like Guerrero and the lack of, and the impunity, frankly, um, that follows, that we have yet to find what happened to them and we have yet to uh, have anyone really um, to prosecute and convict and have any real sense of an investigation that, that works, that's transparent and, and uh, effective. Um, so I think that is just emblematic of one of the big challenges Mexico has. And when we talk about drug trafficking or organized crime, that feeds into it as well. When we talk about there's been many allegations or, or, or um, revelations of houses and others given to cabinet ministers and to the president's wife um, from uh, preferred contractors, should we say. And so at least the perception of corruption, if not actual corruption, Uh, is also very damaging to democracy. Again, part of this rule of law, how do we make sure that there's checks and balances uh, and that no one is favored, that there's a level playing field? So that, to me, is really their biggest challenge. And the students are really emblematic of, of that bigger issue that Mexico faces.
1: Because you tie both countries, the U.S. and Mexico, together in your book, I wonder about the responsibility of the U.S., In regards to this particular case in Guerrero, I'm reminded of a photo of protesters in front of the White House saying um, basically the U.S. is, is part of this too. Guns go south. Illegal guns go south from the U.S. And what is the U.S.'s responsibility in helping Mexico with impunity, with security, with a drug war that sometimes it seems the cartels have the upper hand in
4: I think we do have a responsibility for the very reasons that you mentioned the drugs and the money that comes from drugs the guns that go south but to me this issue is there's two things one is there's something going on here the violence in Mexico the challenge has more to do than just drugs and guns because here in the United States um, we have more drugs because we get them all from Mexico plus other places around the world um and the profits are between the wholesale and the retail level. So the most of the profits remain in the United States. They don't go back to countries like Mexico or even less to countries like Colombia. Uh, so there's more drugs and more money in drugs in the United States than in Mexico. And we have more guns here in the United States than we do in Mexico for all the reasons that we know. But we don't have the violence Mexico has. So there's something else happening in Mexico that is not just about drugs and guns. And then I would say that is this bigger issue of the rule of law and if Mexico can build a system a justice system police systems law enforcement systems that people trust that are professional that work well um, then it can take on drug traffickers but it can also take on petty criminals it can take on all sorts of other challenges to uh, sort of a safe and secure life and that is is where they are today and what they're struggling with I do think that there's a role the United States can play in that Uh, and we can provide a lot of support and assistance and a lot of lessons learned from our own past experience with the mafia and others or lessons from around the world with other countries that have tackled significant organized crime rings whether it's colombia whether it's italy or other places bring some of the lessons bring some of the reforms bring some of the trainers or others to try to start building a more effective system so i do think there's a role the united states can play but in the end this is really about Mexico building its own domestic institutions.
1: The subtitle of your book mentions the road ahead. Is there a particular part of the road ahead that you think we should explore?
4: I think there's many positive signs on the road ahead. And I think particularly the economic integration, the ties that have developed, have been beneficial for Mexico, but also beneficial for the United States. And one of the reasons we are continually globally competitive in some manufacturing areas, particularly in autos, in, in heavy machinery, even in planes and aerospace, in large part has to do with our ties to Mexico and also to Canada. It has to do with North America and the way we make things makes it increasingly viable for not just Mexican workers, but for U.S. workers in these companies that cross these borders. So I think that part is something to build upon. But as we build on the economic side, as we build on the communities that now span the borders with relatives on each side of all of them, um, we we also need to focus on the security. And I think that is an area that both countries will be affected directly or indirectly um, by by the challenges of violence, by the challenges of, of lawlessness. So I think in that sense, it is a glass half full in our relationship with Mexico. I think there's a lot of good things that are happening in this um, but there's still that other part and there's asymmetries. There's differences between the two countries that we need to work on on ameliorating and lessening the bad as we work to also strengthen the good.
1: Thank you so much, Shannon O'Neill of the Council on Foreign Relations, the author of Two Nations Indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the Road Ahead. Join us on Latin Pulse via Skype from New York City today. Thanks so much.
4: Thanks, Ricky. It was my pleasure.
1: Thanks for joining us for this week's program coming to you from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Travel support for this week's program comes from the School of Communications at Webster University. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments about the program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundo's. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs in Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv.org. And then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant Sierra Hancock and producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros. vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School
0: of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.